Welcome to Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, scars on America, though maybe not the kind you're thinking about. Cities across America bear the signs of a complicated history of development, particularly when it comes to the effect that cars have had on shaping urban landscapes. That legacy leaves cities with difficult questions about what to do with the mass of highways that cut across and through them. Highways that have destroyed neighborhoods, divided communities, and reshaped patterns of commerce and where people choose to live and work. A recent article in City Journal titled Scars on the Cities asks, what should America do about its urban highways? Along the way, it unpacks a lot of this fascinating and tangled history and brings up some of the most vexing issues that policymakers face in America today. The author of that article is Eric Kober. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute who retired in 2017 as Director of Housing, Economic and Infrastructure Planning at the New York City Department of City Planning. He has a master's degree in business administration from the Stern School of Business at NYU. And to keep himself from being too New York-centric, he also has a public and international affairs degree from the School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University. Eric, welcome. To great ideas. Great to be here. Thank you. It's delightful to have you. And for urban planning nerds like me, this is especially delightful. Although I have to say, I don't want listeners to think that this is just kind of an, an urban planning story or this, this is only interesting if you live in a city. Your article brings up a whole set of issues that really have to do with the development and building of America and that have shaped the, the, the suburbs and the exurbs and our cities and, like I said in the open, where we live and work. I, I love the way you open the article, and I'm going to just quote a little bit. You say that cities are accretions of historical periods of development. At the center of many European cities sit the remnant medieval town, but U.S. cities are newer, and they're the products of immigration, internal migration, and industrialization that heralded the nation's emergence as a global power. So could you kind of start the story off, off for us there? How did we kind of, in the early stages as America was becoming an international power, how did we start to develop the cities that we see today? The cities today that we see today were largely developed around rail transportation, which was the uh, predominant way that Americans got around in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And rail transportation, it came in a number of forms. Obviously, you had intercity rail, you had trolleys within cities around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, some American cities uh, like New York and Boston and Philadelphia began to build subways, which are mass, uh, a form of, of, of railroad, which is urban mass transit, and L's, which are elevated above the ground, similar to subways in terms of the function that they serve. And so what does this mean for cities? Well, people had to walk to get to these forms of transportation. And so cities developed at a, at a fairly high level of density. And there were classic sort of housing types that you see. In the Boston area, there was the triple decker, which is the sort of three apartments stacked one on top of the other. New York, you have tenements. Philadelphia had attached houses, but these are all generally quite uh, dense uh, forms of, of, of urban development compared with what happened uh, when the automobile came around. 
I found it very interesting in your article that you tie in, this isn't just a story of transportation, it's a story of other forms of technology. And, and you note that heating and electricity generation came from burning coal. And it was really the advent of electric, electric traction around the turn of the 20th century that enabled this less dense form of, of housing and, and clustering around work sites. And that's really what, what began to shape patterns of where people lived and how they got to work. It, it was sort of the, the advent of technology on the uh, generation side. Yeah, the the if you take I mean, you know American cities were small before the advent of electricity and they were very dependent in terms of railroads they were dependent on steam power. So New York City for example had steam powered elves that you just imagine a locomotive burning coal and and sort of dropping sparks on people walking in the street below. It was it was quite a hellish and all that changed when electricity came around all of a sudden uh, it didn't generate smoke or pollution. And so it became possible to, to run these trains underground for long distances. They didn't have to be, the, the smoke didn't have to be vented. In London, there were actually steam versions of the underground of the 19th century. One can't imagine how horrible that was. But I, I don't believe that ever in the United States. Well, of course, I grew up riding the New York City subway system. And I can't say that many New Yorkers thought that it was anything less than horrible at the time, but I see what you mean about an earlier generation of technology that would have been even worse. Nonetheless, though, you point out that in this period, kind of early 20th century, up to even the, the mid 20th century, cities expanded along these public transit lines, that, that the availability of, of subways and, and L's is really what shaped the development of the cities. Yeah, uh, is cars, cars began in the early 20th century, uh, this sort of technology became available, but not that larger percentage of the population owned cars until after the Second World War. So the bulk of the population remained dependent on various kinds of rail transportation in cities. Well, what happened during the Second World War was that the U.S. industrial capacity expanded dramatically. And after the war, of course, they didn't have to build planes anymore, tanks, but they had all this industrial capacity and they, they, they built cars or many companies built cars. And so suddenly cars became much cheaper and more widely available to the general population, but the country didn't have the infrastructure to accommodate them. And so cities became extremely congested because many more people had cars. I mean, just as sort of an anecdotal example of the impact, New York City prohibited overnight parking in the street until 1948. And then after the war, so many more people had cars that they just couldn't prohibit overnight parking on the street anymore. And they had to allow it because there weren't enough garage spaces in the city to accommodate the, the growing number of cars. And so, so this was going on and cities, cities became very congested. And Congress for a number of years appropriated some money, but didn't appropriate all the money that various presidents asked for. And there was this sort of back and forth in Congress about how to build more roads because there were so many more cars. 
And so that really does take us up to this 1950s, early 1960s period, where you were citing the automakers a moment ago. This was the the era of if if it's if it's good for General General Motors, it's good for America. And so we have this burgeoning industrial capacity spitting out relatively inexpensive cars. We don't have the capacity on roads to accommodate all of them, especially in urban areas. And so that's where you pick up the thread of there was a there was a concerted effort to invest not only in the interstate system, but also a system of highways that would get into the city. So what was that all about? What, what was the thinking there? Well, the thinking was that cities would be modernized. And the there was a, there was a prevailing view that that just as we see today, we look at the internet and sort of web-based technology as the wave of the future. If you were around in the 1950s, you would have thought the same way about cars, that they were really the wave of the future. And this, this all went back to a, an exhibit at the 1939 New York World's Fair, which was sponsored by General Motors. It was called Futurama. And it showed these, had dioramas of, of reconstructed American cities with high-rise modernist buildings and vast highways and moving car, linking the various parts of the city. And this was the modern city of the future. And so this was what people thought they were getting. Now, there was another thing that was going on after the war, which turned out to be way more important, which was the invention of the cold chain. Up until the war, very few Americans had refrigerators. You know, refrigerators existed in the 1920s and 1930s, but very few people actually had one. And most people had to shop every day. And the ice man came every day with a block of ice and they put it in the ice box. And that's how they kept food from spoiling. But the ice box didn't have a lot of capacity. So you had to shop every day. So after the war, the cold chain gets invented. This, this industrial capacity uh, is also used to, to uh, manufacture refrigerators. And so the number of, of American households rapidly goes, it rapidly goes universal. Nearly every American household by the early 1950s has a refrigerator. At the same time, supermarkets store refrigerator cases. There's a whole system that's set up to transport refrigerated food, frozen food to cities. And so there is suddenly not a need as there had been previously for cities to be surrounded by truck farms where they grew all the vegetables for urban consumption. And so all this land that was used for truck farms around cities suddenly becomes available. And at the same time, you have all this money that's being appropriated in the 1950s uh, through the, the 1950s, particularly through the 1956 Highway Act, which was called the Interstate Highway Act. It was the sort of big cornucopia of cash that was funneled into states and ultimately into cities to build roads. And But there was also all this land outside of cities that suddenly became available and was accessible to all those people who bought cars. And so while Americans were sold Futurama, Futurama had, had 100-story buildings and modernistic cities of the future, what they got was the suburbs. They really didn't, they really didn't, no one actually made an, an exhibit about the suburbs as, as the sort of new American lifestyle phenomenon and, and before they happened, but they did happen because the land was cheap. The roads were free. The roads were built by, with federal money and people had cars. So 
So that's that remade the country and incidentally also remade the economy because all of a sudden you could have a national economy, which, which was really not possible until the interstate highway system was built. So companies that, that made, manufactured various consumer products didn't have to have a branch plant at every big city. They could have one big plant somewhere and truck the goods in. And the plant didn't even have to be in a city. It could be anywhere because the highways went everywhere. Well, first of all, for all of our listeners who may be catching this, not on radio, but on the Great Ideas podcast, I'll just note that that picture of the Futurama diorama, that's a tongue twister for you, is going to be the cover art for this podcast. So if you're pulling it up on a podcast listening platform, Apple Podcasts, or whatever, and you see the little picture in there, that is what Eric Kober is talking about. And boy, it really does look like a 1939 World's Fair conception of the future. And it looks kind of good. But I think that also touches on another note that really comes through both in your article and in everything you just said, which is, this is very much a story, not only of kind of interweaving sets of technological advancement, right? It's not just about cars. It's not just about transit. It's not just about electricity. It's about inventions like refrigeration, which have this really uh, outsized impact on American culture and life and landscape. But it also illustrates the other thing that I think comes through so clearly in your article, which is the law of unintended consequences. And there seem to be a, a certain level of overambition or or over self-assuredness from the from the planners of the time that they knew exactly what the future would be and it turns out it wasn't it wasn't always what they thought that that the law of unintended consequences was quite extreme in, in the case of the development of all of these high uh, yes people looked into the future and their crystal balls were were quite cloudy so the the one point I make in the article is that if the interstate, the interstate highway system was planned in the mid-1950s, and there's actually a series of, of which are called the Yellow Book, and you could actually search for them online, all the maps of all, every city, which were drawn up, published in 1955 by the, the Bureau of Public Roads, which was the federal agency in charge of building roads. And so it was very much a planned system, and the system had basically three elements. So it had bypasses around cities, and and many cities today have them. And the bypasses had intercity highways that were sort of radiating out from them. And that part of it is not really controversial, hugely successful. The part that was controversial and uh, much less successful were the urban highways, which went inward from the beltways. And if they hadn't built them, then today probably they wouldn't be missed. It would take you, rather than taking you 10 minutes to drive that, that it would take you 20 minutes. But that would probably not be that big of a deal for most people. But at the time, they thought it was existential for cities. They thought the downtown merchants were seeing shopping centers built in the suburbs and they say, I, those people have to get downtown really fast. I have to, we have to build highways to bring them downtown. We have to build parking garages. And... So, and it was, it was built in a lot of cities and, but it turned out that those, those roads went two ways. And in fact, people could leave just as easily as they could come. And that's mostly what they did. And so what you end up with is this thinking, and you can see again, not to overstretch a metaphor here, but this is in some ways a story of the road to hell being 
kind of literally paved with good intentions. You could see how the advent of all of these technologies enabled a new lifestyle in and around cities. And planners are flush with cash from spending from the federal level that's ostensibly for defense, but it's, it's really to create the infrastructure that all of these now affordable cars are going to need. And so you end up with what seems like a logical line of thinking at the time, which is, hey, we really need to extend these highways right into the cities. We're going to connect everything up. We're going to connect it with the suburbs. It'll be great. But it just didn't turn out that way. And now, 50, 60 years later, we are left with this legacy of, of all of these roads. And you go on to trace in your article, how do you solve this? Because there were a lot of problems created. There were a lot of impacts created along the way, a lot of a lot of negative impacts for the people that lived in and around where these roads ended up going. One of the things that I wanted to pick up on most was a piece of history that you trace in your article, but is obviously exhaustively detailed, delightfully so if you're into this kind of thing, in Robert Caro's The Power Broker, particularly about New York City. But this is true in Detroit, as you, as you note in your article, and Philadelphia and many other cities. The places where these urban highways went, cut through low-income neighborhoods uh, and disproportionately African-American neighborhoods with homes and businesses and a lifestyle. And those places are more or less gone. H how significant an impact did we see in all of these cities to those areas? Well, we, the, the people who were planning these highways always wanted to find the First of all, the cheapest way to, to build them. And secondly, they, the least political resistance. Very early on, by the late 1950s, we had in the United States what was called the Freeway Revolt. And it started in San Francisco in the late 1950s, and it really spread to many other cities. And the Freeway Revolt involved citizens sort of rising up against the highway planners. And in many cases, highways were stopped, and not only in San Francisco, but in many other cities. So planners looked for who were the most disempowered citizens in, in, in the cities in which they were trying to build highways. And in, in many places, those were the African-American citizens. In the South, I mean, this was the 1950s, Jim Crow was uh, still in effect. African-American citizens literally uh, could not vote and really could be pretty much pushed around by a government any way it wished. And so many of the new highways that did get built in cities ended up in, in African-American areas and in many cases plowed through African-American business districts, areas where African-American people shopped in order since they, they were not treated as first-class citizens in white-owned stores. They patronized Black-owned stores. For example, women couldn't try on clothes if they went to a white-owned department store. They couldn't use the fitting room, but of course, uh, that was not an issue at a Black-owned store. So they're, they're developed in, in, in highly segregated cities, business districts, where people amassed capital and created viable businesses. And in a number of, of documented cases, the roads were targeted to plow right through the middle of those districts. One of the, the best uh, examples of this is in Miami, where Overtown, which uh, an historically uh, Black uh, business district and one of the largest in the South, was sort of plowed under by a gigantic highway viaduct, which west of, of downtown Miami. 
So what happened when, when these, these highways went through areas that were, were Black-oriented business districts is that people, people lost their businesses. They got compensation, but they no longer had their business. And so African-Americans were forced to shop in places they, they didn't want to, to shop in and, and where they weren't treated with, with dignity. And so an, an, op- an opportunity was really lost to ultimately sort of post the civil rights era to, to enable these Black-owned businesses to, to build on, on their, their past success and reach out to a, a broader. And so there were many of these missed opportunities. Well, and of course, you capture so well in your article that what we saw here was a mix of unintended consequences and in some cases intended consequences, because as you point out, planners went to lowest cost and easiest essentially targets to push around. And then, of course, Robert Caro brilliantly depicts in The Power Broker that there were some very intentional decisions that Robert Moses made in New York to try and target neighborhoods that were predominantly black or to build highways with certain specifications so that black people would disproportionately not be able to to make it to the beaches, for example. And so there is a very tangled history here. On the other hand, there were some things that were truly unintended consequences. You point out that that the effort to make highways straighter and wider and, and safer meant that you needed much bigger swaths of right of way and land, and that magnified the impact of these urban cut-throughs. Yeah, the, uh, the early efforts at highways produced some, some really dangerous highways that didn't have shoulders, had very short and steep entrance and exit ramps, and they were really quite scary to, to drive on. Many of these uh, early highways have been uh, demolished by now or substantially reconstructed up to what are called interstate standards. But these sort of vaunted interstate standards, which had 12-foot lanes and 8-foot shoulders and regulated the sort of angle of, of the exit and entrance ramps, just required more land. And you can see in the historic photos of, of these enormous cuts that were made through cities, just how many houses needed to be uh, cleared away. Many cases, many cities, thousands of houses were cleared away to create these very wide rights over, over, over long distances and or other opportunities were taken, which, which destroyed neighborhood features or open spaces. Another of the, the very controversial interstate highways was the Claiborne Expressway in New Orleans, where a boulevard that had a wide uh, median that was planted with mature trees was, was the trees were, were cleared away in a giant concrete viaduct was built where, where the, the trees once stood, sort of devastating. And this was, again, it was a, an African-American community, again, devastating that community in order to, to get cars more quickly downtown, which was really the, the, the intention. And today there is a movement in New Orleans to remove the expressway and, and restore the avenue as, as it once existed. But of course, the community is, is, is not what it was. Once you've destroyed a community, even if you take down the expressway, you can't put back what you had. You, you have to put back something different, ultimately, but perhaps something better than you have now. Well, that actually leads into exactly what I was going to ask you, which is you write in your article that building urban interstate highways was often a bad idea, but removing them is not a simple matter because patterns of economic activity 
adjust to the existence of the highways and commuters use them, businesses depend on them. This is an aspect of life in these cities that the cities have subsequently evolved around. And so I, I guess the first question is, when did it begin to dawn on city planners and highway planners and everyone else who's in charge that maybe we have a problem that, that we need to do something about? I think it, the, the movement toward the highway deconstruction probably began about 20 years ago nationally. There was a, a well-publicized uh, Milwaukee removed an expressway around 2004, which was, I think, widely publicized. That was among the earliest highway teardowns. And, you know, it, it was, it was uh, concurrent with the, the, the sort of movement of educated populations back toward the inner city that began to, to result in neighborhoods being quote unquote gentrified of, of neighborhoods that were at one time poor or, or desolate. Suddenly the housing becomes attractive and well-educated and relatively affluent people begin to, to move into those neighborhoods. And they begin to want things that previously the population either didn't think about or didn't feel empowered to ask for. And so you have this, 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 this building tide of public sentiment. You also have a problem that the roads are getting old. So states are, are faced with, well, we could spend hundreds of millions of dollars, let's say, to reconstruct this road, or we're just going to take it down. So there has been, there, there is a lot of agitation to take down roads. There's been relatively little taking down of roads thus far, just because it's so difficult and always has an economic interest after 50 or 60 years in, in what currently exists. But some projects are, are more advanced than others. Uh, for example, in Syracuse, New York, there is a, a well-advanced project to, to remove the Interstate 81 viaduct, which goes past Syracuse University in downtown. They benefit from having a bypass road where through traffic can be rerouted, which was built as a beltway, but it can become the main, the main road. And it will take five more minutes for through traffic to get around town. But this is a a price that that city seems to be willing to pay. Other places, it's been much hard. Hartford, Connecticut, for example, was really devastated by the construction of interstate highways uh, really through the downtown. And they've been studying for decades how to move them or get rid of them. And it, it just geographically, it turns out to be extremely hard. Given the traffic that's that's grown up over the years, it has to be rerouted somewhere. And, and it's just turned out to be a very difficult project. There have been a number of plans, but nothing has actually removed the, the downtown highways as of yet. Well, our podcast listeners are all over the U.S. and actually internationally, but our New Hampshire radio listeners would probably be most familiar with the Big Dig effort, which took, I, I can't even remember how many years at this point and went how many billions of dollars over budget estimates and literally had setbacks, including falling masonry that, that killed a motorist and was just beset by all kinds of corruption and, and problems. So these efforts are not easy. The big dig was intended, as, as you pointed out in your article, to replace the elevated central artery. I guess at this point, we've gotten used to it, those of us who drive through that area. But what a massive undertaking was involved in just that one construction project. And I guess all of this sort of begs the question, are there any good solutions here, especially any good kind of comprehensive solutions for all of these places where this is a problem? 
Or is the effort to remove these scars across America really more trouble than it's Well, if you could do it, it's not more trouble than it's worth. Uh, that means that you have a plan and an alternative that you're willing to live with. And for example, in Syracuse, they can do it. And that's great. In Rochester, they removed a, a segment of an expressway as well. And there's been some housing built on what used to be the expressway. And that, that, that is also, these are cities that lost a lot of population and they don't really need the road capacity. They, they, it's much harder when you do need the road capacity because your population is still what it was. Or in the case of Hartford, you have these major interstate arteries that just happen to intersect right in your downtown. And the trucks are, are, have to go someplace. You, you and the traffic at that intersection, by the way, is awful. I drive that route a lot yes. personally. It's yes. not awesome. Yes, and, but it has, it has to go somewhere. So the answer is, if you could do it, it's great. Lots of places are trying to do it. If you can't do it, then what you're living with is, a, a really, dev is really a devastated city that can't reconnect itself through this giant mass of concrete. And, and, and you pay a long-term price for that. It, it's the, the interstate highways that go through Hartford don't add a lot of value to Hartford. They, they add a lot of value to the American economy because they, they accommodate interstate transportation, but Hartford is just sort of collateral damage. And so many cities are, are really stuck in this, in this dilemma. So I, I think over time, some cities will find a solution that works for them. It's got to be, everybody's got to do their own customized study and, and find their own customized solution. But many cities will not. And uh, as I said, they pay a price. And since most innovation and economic activity in this country it takes place in, in cities and young people like to flock to cities to meet their future bait. And that attracts the kinds of businesses that, that employ well-educated young people. And there's a clearly in cities that, that resisted the sort of siren call of urban freeways like New York and Boston and Washington and San Francisco, there's clearly a synergy that comes from not having giant smelly concrete viaducts running through the center of your city. The others are, are either going to find a way or they're not going to enjoy the same benefits. A theme that jumped out to me that ran through your article, I've already alluded a few times to the idea of unintended consequences. The word that jumps out most to me that you apply to the highway planners at the time around the yellow book, the development of the, of the plan in the early 1960s, the word is arrogance. It's this sense that we know what the future is going to be, and we know what the effect of all the things we're doing now will be, and we know how to equate the need of the future with what we're doing now. And there's, there is an arrogance in that. And it's captured so well in that, that Futurama diorama. See, I did it again, that you, you insert the, that photo into the article. So I guess the question I would have is looking forward as we look to apply solutions to fix these scars, is there a lesson learned for today's planners, for, for, for the Eric Kobers of today who are engaged in trying to figure out what is the future going to be? And what do I need to do now to make that future better? Is, it, is that lesson to avoid arrogance and, and perhaps be a little humbler? Is it to give more option value to, to different kinds of outcomes? How would you advise today's planners? Well, today's planners don't have the fire hose of cash that the Eisenhower administration made available. And, and 
that in and of itself makes people humbler because they can't remake the, the, we, this, the country is faced with a different set of, of challenges today. It's faced with the challenge of climate change. We're going to need to become less dependent on, on a transportation that, that burns carbon and how exactly that's going to happen in a city that's heavily, in a country that's heavily suburbanized and heavily dependent on automobiles is really quite unclear, except we're pretty sure the country isn't going to be remade in a a space of 10 years, which is really what happened after the 1956 Highway Act, that the solutions to climate change, the technological solutions, the sort of remaking of our environment in response to that, it's going to take just because we don't have the fire hose of cash and therefore, it's going to be more, it, it has to be more adaptive to, to actual conditions on the ground and more better able to, to, to respond to, to adverse effects as, as, they, as they emerge. So I think that if, if, if the, the real lesson, first, first of all, the, the lesson is kind of ironic because, of course, the engineers who built the, the interstate highway system won the war. So the whole idea of, of turning a fire hose of cash on highways happened because they turned the fire hose of cash on the war and built the most amazing industrial machine the world had ever seen. That's how they got arrogant, because it worked once. Right. So right. Um, the whole Robert McNamara logistics wins the war type approach. Yes, yes, right. absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and he was then the 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 head of the Ford Motor Company. Right, right. You know, at, at, the, at the time all this was happening. So yet another uh, way that that whole war legacy kind of bonds with the industrial legacy yes. built around cars. Yes, yes. So uh, we, we, we don't have that experience anymore. And you know, we don't plan on people who do urban planning. They don't plan with the kind of extraordinary public credulity that allowed this to happen, that all oh, these people won the war, they know best. It was President Eisenhower, who was behind the 1956 Highway Act. He was the general who commanded the armies that won the war. We just don't have that context anymore. And people, of course, and this is very much a legacy of the interstate highway system and the freeway revolt, is that the public does not trust government the way it trusted government. And, and so everybody must be humbler and must listen more and must experiment more and draw a blank, draw, take a blank canvas and draw a new world the way they did. In the minute or so that we have left, do you think that that spirit of humbleness and, and kind of keeping options open, has any of that idea found its way into the new infrastructure bill, which is, of course, the next tranche of investment that we're going to make in infrastructure in America? In real terms, it's wildly smaller than the the... 1956 Highway Act. I mean, the money involved, although it's a very substantial amount of money, is is much smaller. And of course, it's not only for highways. There, there's a very substantial transit component uh, as well. And and this is a battle that's been fought over the years to to create options for transportation that don't only only involve a personal car. Eric Kober is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and as you could tell throughout episode, an absolute stone cold expert in his in housing and economic and infrastructure planning and the really fascinating history. And I hope that I've convinced those of you who have made it through this whole episode of what I said in the beginning, that this isn't just a story about roads, 
this, I mean, like it's the, it's the joke from back to the future where we're going, we don't need roads. This isn't just a story about roads. This is a story about the development of America in the last hundred years and some of the vexing challenges that we face in policy and planning and trying to make decisions for a far off future that we may be able to envision and maybe not so much. And it's just, it, it really, I commend this article in City Journal to all of our listeners. And Eric Cobra, thank you so much for being with us on Great Ideas. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs>